Fabulous 413. I'm Kalee Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. According to NPR, Punxsutawney Phil, the renowned groundhog who's been predicting when winter will end since 1887, says things are about to warm up. On average, Phil has gotten it right 30% of the time over the past 10 years, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, as they said in an update on Friday. Groundhogs are also called woodchucks, land beavers, or whistle pigs, which makes me wish we were doing a whistle pig whiskey tasting today. Groundhogs also ate most of my garden this oh, past year. We have a dear. little vendetta against them. Yeah. But instead, we'll take you to the Wine Thunderdome at State Street and taste two 20-ish year old Syrahs from very different terroirs. And it's Live Music Friday. We welcome a band who'll play their final show ever tonight at Luthier's Co-op in East Hampton. The Colony Motel. One person who is likely upset that the groundhog did not see his shadow and has predicted early spring is gold medal snow sculptor from Florence, Dave Rothstein. You may remember Dave from when he joined us back in November after paddling a hollowed out pumpkin 39 miles down the Connecticut River in an attempt to break the hitherto little known world record of aquatic pumpkin travel. Dave has just come back from Colorado where he and his team took home the gold medal as well as the Artist's Choice and the People's Choice Award at last week's Breckenridge International Snow Sculpture Championships. He's actually brought the awards into the studio and they are gorgeous. They are gorgeous. They look like bottles of vodka or gin. Yes. They're very appropriate for snow sculpting. Yes. And you've also brought one of the snow sculpting tools with you. Dave Rothstein from Florence, welcome back to the Fabulous 413. It is my pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is, uh, first of all, the pumpkin feat was incredible. And one I think one of my favorite moments of 2023 writ large to just show what a weird place we live in. And you were at the epicenter, literally, of the pumpkin. But you had to travel to Colorado. And join Team Mexico. To win this championship. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> Tell we, us. Go, we go to the extremes to make good things happen. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I don't want to make any su- sort of assumptions, but Dave Rothstein from Florence might not be the first person you'd think of as part of Team Mexico. But talk about your allegiance to Team Mexico in these championships. Sí, cómo está? Bien, ¿y tú? I only speak a little Spanish. Yeah. And I think I got one or two phrases each day over the last, Mas last nieve. week. Mas yeah. nieve. So, yeah. Babel and Duolingo are on my list for this year. Oh, totally. Um, I'm part of uh, an incredible subculture of snow carvers who carve all around the world. And it's this amazing cultural exchange. It sounds really weird. You have to be a little bit crazy. As you said, the (laughs) epicenter of weirdness. Uh, Yes. Um, (laughs) And it's it's kind of a magical time. It's a little bit of the movie Frozen combined with the Olympics, combined with like an exchange program from high school. I love it. And 
so this year out at Breckenridge, we had teams from Mongolia and China and Korea. We had Team Mexico and we had uh, Ecuador from the southern more climbs of the Americas. Yeah. Is there a lot of ice in Ecuador? There is not. So they get all their practice when they come to events, but they're all incredibly talented sculptors. And so what would take, you know, up to a year to carve out a stone, you can do in four days with a team of four. Ah. And so it's it's wonderful. And Team Mexico, my friend Carlos, who's the team captain there, and I have a long history of collaborating. We collaborated on one of the big hay sculptures over at Park Hill Orchard a couple of years ago with the big owls. He came up to help with that. Wow. And we've just been looking for an opportunity to sculpt snow together. So this was it. And we had kind of a, a we called it the Tex-Mex team. <laughs> uh, we had two Americans, one from Minnesota, one from here, myself, and then two from Colima, Mexico, which is on the Pacific side, about halfway down, two hours from Guadalajara. Amazing. Do you train for, if you're in a warmer location do you train by working with sand i know it works differently but like some of the ways that it holds up when you're sculpting are kind of similar is that like how they only train when they get up to colorado to to do this on the fly so fast and well um yeah uh, carlos started his sculpting back in 2008 uh at breckenridge and he's traveled all over the world also and so you know during the season there can be up to five or six different competitions that you're attending. So you get your practice in that way. Uh, he's an architect. We have someone on the team who's a trained artist, uh, myself, kind of like a self-trained artist. And yeah, I mean, we here get to practice with snow people and snow forts and everything else. And I feel like it's a very relatable medium in many ways. And what differentiates us from the person doing something in their yard is pushing snow to the extreme so that you have things that are hollowed out or have a lot of light entering it or have a hollow or a shadow and trying to uh, kind of have those th those risky situations where like, people say, is that all snow? There's an armature in there. Or do you spray it with water? How is that staying up? But no. And, but no. Yes. It's all snow. <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking with Dave Rothstein, who is a, the triple threat hat trick winner from the Breckenridge International Snow Sculpture Championships just back this week. First, describe to us the block of snow that you are working with when you begin this sculpture, your tabula rasa. Yes. So we all start with the same block of snow. It's uh, 10 foot by 10 foot and 12 feet high, and it's about 42 pounds per square foot, which translates to about 50,000 pounds of snow <laughs> per sculpture that you're moving around. Amazing. So we probably left about half of it there, but then we kind of reconfigured the other uh, 25,000 into other things that are adorned around the, the sculpture. Um, and you can build up. We built up about uh, four feet on top of our block, so it was standing 16 feet tall, and it's all about having presence at that size yeah. um, and trying to make, m m have, a, have a showstopper at the same time, have a venue for a conversation with people who are coming by. But it's, so it's, so it's a lot of snow and it's compacted. It's made, it's man-made snow that's compacted into a giant form and people get into the form and there are like 12 people inside stomping it down. And eventually they move all the way up to the top 
and then they have a ladder and get down and they peel the form off and it's like a giant brick of styrofoam uh-huh. but like really heavy cold styrofoam <laughs> that gets very icy it was interesting to see your pictures of like the before of all the the giant like 10 by 10 by 10 by 12 like bricks just out on the field un like untouched yeah. and pristine as they were starting to get worked on too yeah except for the fact that somebody spray painted mexico on your block which is amazing because yeah. <laughs> yeah, as we would mentioned dave sculpted with team mexico the title of your sculpture that won the gold medal the, the triple crown three awards at this breckenridge sculpture uh, contest is the beggar tell us about the beggar what it's all about and again you're going to please go to our social media or go check out the website of this competition so that you'll be able to see this but we'll well use your mind listener to That's imagine right. what this sculpture looks like it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> there, it is. Uh, it's a. It's a, a. A sinewy man who's emaciated, essentially, balancing on his heels and trying to lift a giant bitcoin off the ground while he's sitting on a, tie, a, a pile of giant bitcoin, surrounded by little bitcoin everywhere, and it's kind of the reverse beggar. Um, we wanted to tell the message that no matter how much money you have, if that's all you're pursuing, you'll never be happy. Mm. And so, you know, unless you're rich in your soul and rich in your heart, um, wealth is a hungry beggar. Um, And we were surprised by the reaction that we got because snow often translates for little kids. And so it's usually the bears and the comical things that will get the attention uh, for people's choice. And we had so many people come to us and say that the sculpture really resonates with them and that they were glad we were telling without that we had a message, a broader message. And as an artist who works in this very ephemeral form, it's uh, it's really heartening to um, be able to convey something larger than ourselves mm. and be part of a, a bigger conversation. It's certainly a powerful piece of art. And the choice to use Bitcoin as the uh, form of currency, I thought, was a very topical and interesting uh, way to, to create this sculpture. Uh, you have brought with you, and we mentioned that there was a Mongolian team, one of the tools that you use to make this sculpture. Tell us about this tool and where you got it from. So this tool is uh, it's an extend-a-pole. Think about like a snow rake that you'd put on your roof, but it's made out of hand-carved wood and it pieces together so you can travel with it. Um, and it has different lengths, so depending on where, if you're on the top of the block and you're working down, you can get down six or seven or eight feet. And if you're moving in, you can get to the center of the block. But on top of it is the chalice of snow sculpture. It's the, it's a multi-pronged trident of force. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. It is. It's got it, more than try in its dent. It's probably like yeah. Um, it, it's toothed like a saw, but the the teeth are are deep and like the way that it's. Uh, that it's incredibly sharp. We have to be pretty delicate with this. Yeah, <laughs> this thing careful. is a—it's a beast. And so I have one that has a black handle that we call the black mamba, and this is going to be some <laughs> kind of albino snake. But the head of it has such a bite. So this stuff—it just, just rips through the snow, and it's a wonderful feeling when you can debulk a sculpture. Yeah, and half the time that you normally would. And so these are these are prized tools, and they're hard to come by. And I think as part of this exchange that we have with the other artists comes, uh, you know, we don't speak the same language at all. 
we speak a language of snow, and it's something we all understand, the intricacies of the snow and how it melts and how it morphs and what it can withstand. And there's a lot of tool envy that happens <laughs> on the... And so we're, we're constantly pushing each other to develop new tools because there's nothing made specifically for snow sculpture. And so this is like the Nimbus 2000 <laughs> of snow sculpting tools. And I, I was privileged enough to have the Mongolian team gift it to me. Um, are the is the head of this one, which is about like like seven ish inches, like seven ish. It's like, it's, is it smaller or wider than the other one that you have? Uh, this is seven point eight seven inches, twenty centimeters. <laughs> um, and I have a number of different heads, and they're all. This is this one that you're looking at is curved. There are some that are straight. There are some that have. Uh, larger ridges on the side so that you have a very balanced pass. So you can do, what's nice about it is it's all about balance. It's kind of the karate kid of, you know, when he does the, the swan thing. The crane oh, no, The crane tech. Yeah, yeah. my language, yeah. So <laughs> it's the same thing because it's all about where your hand is positioned on the, on the rod. And so you can get a very clean straight line with no edges coming off of it. But you can also do the most beautiful curves with it. And it's kind of counterintuitive because it looks like it's a very straight tool. Yeah, it looks like a garden edger almost with like some mean, nasty looking teeth on yeah. it. But I love that it came to you from the Mongolians yeah. who then paid tribute to the indigenous people of this continent with their snow sculpture that you can see uh, on all of the, the sites for the Breckenridge International Snow Sculpture Championship or on Dave Rothstein's Facebook where there's amazing videos and sculptures on there. Um, what I remember before I even knew you were going to these competitions to do this is that you in your Florence backyard in Massachusetts would like build an igloo and then put a bar in the igloo and then welcome all the neighbors over to come drink cocktails in this igloo that you created in the backyard. Is that where you kind of got involved in the be the beginnings of, of artistic snow sculpture to this level? Um, no, but <laughs> that was a very fun time. And for the record, <laughs> it was by invite only. It was not open to the public. I was not serving minors. Okay, good, good, good. Um, <laughs> but it was fun. It was another way. Like all of this is about, you know, breaking cabin fever and having people appreciate winter yeah. and mm -hmm. not be drummed down by it. Right. Um, I started back in 1998 when I was living in Alaska. Uh, we had a two-week festival. And during that festival, you have a choice of, if you want to participate of like 100 different activities. By the time I figured out what I wanted to do, the great outhouse race, uh -huh. where you build your own outhouse and put it on skis. <laughs> and then you stick someone in a costume inside and drag them around this <laughs> This is real? This, this is, is real, real. yeah. <laughs> That Seriously, make fairy tales. You live, you live a fairy tale <laughs> yeah. life. Yeah. Well, it was canceled because they couldn't find a sponsor to pay for the liability insurance. Uh -huh. So I signed up for snow sculpture, and I fell in love, and uh -huh. I've been doing it ever since. It's amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful, and it's something everyone can do. Yes. Like, I wasn't a trained artist. I'm not a trained artist. Sometimes I don't even think of myself as an artist. I'm an enthusiast. I love winter. But anyone can go outside and fill a cardboard box with snow and tamp it down and remove it and start with a blank canvas or a refrigerator box or fill a... Is that the pro tip? Like, you know, you make a snow person or whatever in your yard, a snowman, you roll up the balls and you put three on top of each other. That comes out okay sometimes. But if you want to make like a real sculpture, pack it tight. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah have some kind of form. Like it could be a garbage barrel yeah. that you hollow out the bottom and just stuff it, stick your kid in there and jam them <laughs> up and down until it's compressed and then peel it off. And you can use a spoon or you yeah. can use a knife or you can 
by the giant Mongolian moil. It's compacting it. That gives you the the right amount of density to actually work with it and come up with something, exactly. something else out of it. So, uh, I would I could talk to you about this all day, Dave Rothstein. But we have to get to the rest of the show here. Congratulations again, first oh, of all, on, on the beggar and this beautiful sculpture. And we'll post pictures on our social media so you can see it. It's won three awards at the Breckenridge International Snow Sculpture Championship. But I want to know why do they destroy these sculptures when it's over? I saw the video of them taking like a bulldozer and knocking them all down. Well, it's funny because I actually like that part because <laughs> it's it's all going to go anyways right? yeah. back to the water cycle. Um, it's sad to see them go, but. The DPW does so much work to put those blocks together that they actually have a little lottery to see who gets to knock them down, uh, which I think is really cute. And I uh, love that. Yeah. That's, that's fun. It, it's ephemeral. Beautiful things don't last a long time. We have to appreciate them. If you're ever driving in Florence and there's a little bit of snow on the ground and you see this artistic snow shoveling on a driveway, the chance that it's Dave Rothstein's house is high. If he has an igloo there in a bar in the backyard and it's snowing. It's Ask him, first. But you need permission to go there. <laughs> Invite only. Get out and enjoy winter. Yes. Dave Rothstein, uh, the gold medal snow sculptor, thank you so much for joining us once again. Absolutely my pleasure. <laughs> Later in the show for Live Music Friday, we'll bring you the penultimate performance of the East Hampton band, the Colony Motel, who will perform their swan song at Luthiers in East Hampton this evening. But up next, we'll head over to State Street in Northampton and taste two wines from the early part of this millennium, which was allegedly two decades ago. (laughs) You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Old wine. Ooh. Yeah, we're <laughs> not new stuff. No, we don't need any of this. It's like the opposite of the jerk, right? Uh, yes, but no more 1966. Let's splurge. Bring us some fresh wine, the freshest you've got this year. No more of this old stuff. Oui, monsieur? It's sort of the gift that keeps on giving. I keep coming down here and opening the boxes and walking into the office and be like, did you know about this? You know, the wine sounds like, what? Where did that come from? I'm like, I don't know, it was behind a bunch of boxes. So for the love of Pete, you know, so we're tasting them. You know, we've definitely had some bad ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's been a nice adventure. And it's been nice to sort of be able to present this to the public and um, get people interested in being patient with their wines. We're in the wine bunker deep below State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits, the birthplace of the Wine Thunderdome with the wine son and the Yankee Sippa, who we referenced before, because you um, at least were part of the Champanese Mug Club for uh, a while. Yeah, I still am. Oh, you, you guys went there. Yeah. yeah, that is one of our hideouts. So thanks for blowing up the spot. <laughs> now we go there, so we don't have to see anyone we know. Nobody go I, there. No, no Champanese is wonderful. The people who run it are wonderful. We call it Mug Club. My partner goes, "You want to go to Mug Club?" We go, "Yes, we go to Mug Club." And I drink a gigantic Guinness. And at the end of the year, I get to leave with my will be now my fourth ceramic mug. That's awesome. Yeah. And they're really nicer and the food's great and they also have a gluten-free fryer so if mm. you are in the same boat that we're at hit them up we tasted Kalise and i a 1947 <gasps> rioja reserva so wow. we're gonna drink old wine but not quite that old no it's not that old we have had a lot of attention being paid to some of the older vintages so most of this stuff is stuff that was bought by the wine mother who is the woman who led me down my road to wine snobbery judy o'brien was a pioneer in this area especially for women that was Mm -hmm. like running a wine shop of this caliber and taught me everything i know and i think a 
decade and a half ago, I probably had both of these wines with her. I'm sure that this is true. <laughs> she would have been excited about both of them when they came in, and rightfully so. But it's going to be really fun to revisit them because uh, Yankee Sippa and I spent New Year's Eve here working the store and selling champagne all night. And while the fireworks were going off, we actually opened one of these O2 Finca Sandoval's, which we're going to try right now. Mm. And we were like, people need to know about this wine. Oh my <laughs> God, it's so good. So hopefully we have a bottle of equal caliber. Uh, so we're going to try Finco Sandoval 2002 from Mantuela. And it's uh, predominantly Syrah with just a little bit of Monastrell. And then we're also going to try from Australia, Molly Duker's Blue-Eyed Boy from the 2007 vintage. That okay. Finca could itself drink in this year of our lord yeah, 2024 so yeah. <laughs> we joked about that too because we were like it's old enough to drink and we mean that yeah. not double by, entendre yeah. Yeah. like it has if you check its license it's old it, enough to drink make that man an entendre and make it a double oldest to youngest is oftentimes a good way to go right if you're going to decide what to drink first yeah so if these wines were new we would definitely do the Spanish and then the Australian because Australian Shiraz tends to be that really big fruit forward. Mm -hmm. I'm expecting a fair amount of the fruit to have dropped out on this. I think we're still going to drink the Spanish one first. This winemaker was actually a really well-known and really well-respected. Victor de la Serna was a a writer and a bon vivant and decided to become a a winemaker. He thought Syrah would do better in this region than the other things that people were growing. The cuttings Mm -hmm. for this are actually from uh, Chateauneuf-du-Pape. That's even more interesting to me. They were like, sure, take some of our, you know, CDP cuttings and bring them to Spain. The southern part of Montuela has a lot more of a, a Mediterranean influence, and the northern part of Montuela is, um, has more of an, a continental. The page I was looking at to brush up on this called it harsh continental. Harsh. <laughs> is that like your average French person? <laughs> it's it's not... like when you go down in the hotel and they've just got, like, Lucky Charms and, like, some toast. Harsh I mean, it's a harsh oh continental you provided for eggs that can double as popcorn. You <laughs> just like like gumballs, you can bounce them off. Have the you ever door. seen the Saturday Night Live skit with Billie Eilish and, and Kate McKinnon about the hotels? And breakfast means morning here at Business Garden Inn and Suites and Hotel Room Inn. Fill up on all your continental breakfast favorites like wet egg. Anyway, let's open up the Finca Sandoval. Uh-oh. Ooh, the Asso. For the listeners of NEPM and the Fabulous 413, this is the first time we've experienced this particular opening, although it was referenced in the 1947 bottle opening. If you have an old cork, mm-hmm. there is a tool that can help you open them that looks a little bit like tweezers or maybe like chopsticks that are attached together, and it is called... An Asso. How dare you, my friend! accurate. It's just fun to say. So you put it around the edge of the cork with the two tweezers. I really should have been filming this. And then you slowly but surely grasp it. Ooh, that looks solid. Put right out. You did it perfect, wine son. I've been adventuring through old wine for a little while now. You've been practicing with your asso for a long time. Sure have. It's called, that's the name of the opener, everybody. It's not my fault that that's how language works. This one, the Finca Sandoval, smells magnificent. Holy smokes. Oh, yeah. I just got the chills. Oh, and it's got that little funk at the end of the nose. Yeah. But remember, like, this is Spanish. It's mm-hmm. not French. So we, the thing we were talking about, we looked at the latitude lines and realized that this is kind of like a northern Rhone. In the harsh continental. Cereal and gumball machine. <laughs> DIY waffle. Sausage that squirts. Despite the harsh continental, the harsh continental uh, climate conditions, it is at oh. 2,400 feet of elevation. It gets some benefit to the cool night. There. Harsh Continental sounds like a pavement song. Yeah. 
I'm getting a little pavement in the uh, on the nose as well. Thanks, Stephen Malkmus. Oh. There's like a little bit of cassis too going on. Like, mm-hmm. I got like a funk beef. I'm sorry, I thought you said you were in a funk because you had a beef with somebody. No. I finally watched Beef, though, that multiple Emmy award-winning show. It was great. You started this. Me? Yeah. Okay, you're the one who backed into me like a psycho. You're the one that flipped me off. Are you guys leaving or are you just going to sit there? What'd you say? What'd you say? Say it again! I dare you to say it again! Yeah. Also, should I say Beef in the... No, no, please. You don't want the Sam Elliott Beef again? No. Come on. Come on. Chateaubriand. It should be Catalonian beef ragu. I think this bottle's better than the one we opened prior. Ah, good. Save the best for us. This must have been so much funkier. Oh, yeah. So much more barnyard 20 years ago. The thing that bothers me most about it is that 2002 was 22 years ago. I uh, procured some cheese from the deli. One of the things it suggested for Syrah and Shiraz both was specifically Beecher's cheddar. And, oh, and, you, have, and you have. And that's what we've got. You have Excellent. Cheese sticks of Beecher's cheddar. I do, I know. And baby bells as well. Yeah, well, Gouda was Gouda's fifth on the list of yeah. 10 cheeses to pair with it. I also I love know. chewing the wax on those. <laughs> what? Like, on the baby do, bells. Do you like mini wax lips? Like little, I love that. Little, little oh, yeah, it's so gratifying. We would always just use them as like sculpting material. Remember the nickel nips? Uh-uh. Wax bottles. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I never yeah. called them those. Yeah. That's the official name of them. Uh-huh. With indeterminate colored liquid. Inside. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like you wax, can't even yeah. really tell what color the liquid is inside. The wax is so I thick. Can, yeah, yeah, right. Like, you're, like, literally just eating wax. I'm going to eat this candle. He's apparently fine with that. <laughs> I am. It's fiber. It's I didn't fiber. swallow it. <laughs> it's the opposite. Not all of it. No. Heather swallows it. Okay, the first wine, once again. Finca Sandoval from Mantuela, Spain. Over 90% Syrah, under 10% Mavedra. Syrah stolen from that. France and brought to Spain. <laughs> from that's Chateau right. de Duvap, yeah. you know, that's the other and cool n- thing. And not inexpensive. No, it's uh, at least a grant. Not a grand, a no. grant. It's Grant and his buddy Lincoln. Uh, that's L-I-N-C-O-L-E. I know how to spell Lincoln. Oh, so the next one, this one is a little bit younger. What year is this again? This is 2007, Blue-Eyed Boy Shiraz from Australia. So we'll call it Shiraz. Shiraz, Shiraz. from Molly Duker. Molly Duker is a Australian euphemism for left-handed people. It is a blend of 80% McLaren Vale. Most people recognize the name Barossa Valley. McLaren Vale is sort of the next really well-known Shiraz territory of Australia. I remember drinking this with the wine mother or going through the Molly Duker wine. Yes. Years and years ago, one of them was so intense you were told you should oh. shake it before you yeah. drink it. Yeah. They called it the that, Molly Duker shake. That's still on their website. <laughs> I mean, this nose is pretty intense. It is intense. It, it can this be is funkier than the other one. Yeah, yeah, it is. Should be noted also that uh, this is a pretty early adoption Stelvin enclosure. Screw cap. Um, they were putting a Stelvin enclosure on this at a time when we really had no idea what the impact on ageability would be with Stelvin enclosures. So nice, nice to say uh, that you know, if anything, it allows for less evolution of the wine. Yeah. So we're, we're probably closer to its original state yep. than we otherwise would have been. Because A, real cork can sometimes have a taint that will taint the wine. Yep. And B, even if you have a, a cork-like product, sometimes the wiggle room in there makes oxygen get and in and kind of could ruin the are like made out of weird stuff. Yeah, and, like those little plastic bottles with liquid in them and you want to chew them. Yeah. <laughs> Even an untainted cork is going to allow for some seepage of oxygen over time. In a lot of ways, that's a good thing. It's not like people started laying down wine so that they could remember some year way back when. It was like, this is way too harsh to drink. So we're going to drink the old stuff and we'll wait for this to mellow out. (laughs) Just like humans themselves. The fact that 
wines with screw caps uh, enclosures. <laughs> have proven themselves to continue to be age-worthy is, is a great thing for the industry yeah. because we're not reliant on cork. There is no more cork. You know, it doesn't grow that fast. I mean, people don't know where cork comes from. It's a tree. They basically peel layers and layers off of it, and they leave it alone, and then it grows more. Unfortunately, the demands for wine, you don't get to get all that cork. I get Whoa! similar notes on the nose, though. There's Definitely. a much more pronounced tar with this one, but oh, it was, yeah, it's, it is, it's but... there. I think there's a bigger fruit. Yep. Yes. Like, there's all the stank plus, it's just, it's and just then fruit. Big. like. It makes the other one seem super subdued. There's like, it's a huge jammy presentation yeah. on this wine, and it has not lost a thing. Yeah. It's almost got like this brandy-ish note. Is mine. And not heat from the wine. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't get a lot of heat in this wine. Oh, I no. do. Do you not? Yeah. 14.8% alcohol. There's a good guess. Yeah. What is Anybody it? else? 16. Holy Whoa. crap! This is almost fortified <laughs> yeah. by itself. Okay, well that explains the brandy notes. <laughs> Impossible. Yeah. Massive, like massive, rich blackberry. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Rich, rich blackberry. Oh yeah, this, this is, is a fruit bomb. There was a period of time when I was starting my road to wine mm-hmm. snobbery around 2008, I believe, yeah. where Australian Shiraz was mm-hmm. like all the rage. Like everybody wanted this in-your-face, big, explosive fruit bomb from Australia. It's... And so, if if that's still what you like you are going to like this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, that was so true of that time period. Mm. That Those wines were so unstoppable. The fruit is huge, but it's not so huge that you're just like dying in a jam bomb. No, but if you want something, like if you're going to make like a blue cheese burger Ooh, or something uh, like that nice with call. onions nice like call. and this, you're like, going to have the most like decadent experience. Onion tartan. Yeah, there we go. Something like that. Yeah. Savory tartans, man. Get on it. <laughs> this blue-eyed boy is also obviously unfiltered. Ah, right. And also, um, not inexpensive. Nope. Also, more than a grant. They are the same price? They are the the, same price. They're they're the same grant and friend. Lincoln, right? Isn't that the friend? Grant and Lincoln wines for Black History Month. (laughs) (laughs) We did it, everyone. We're free now. All of our problems are solved. We're so progressive. My gut conscience is clear. Two men enter, one man leaves. It is time to choose in the Wine Thunderdome. We've got 2002 Finca Sandoval, predominantly Syrah. We've got the 2007 Molly Duker, Blue-Eyed Boy, predominantly Shiraz. Both older wines. It almost is like the nature versus nurture argument with kids. Like we're talking about grapes. There are similarities that you can't take away from the grape. And the terroir is what makes the ultimate difference. Both of these have a little bit of tar and tobacco. Both of them have a little bit of cassis and blackberry. Both of them have a little bit of like a black pepper spicy quality to it. But the way that those interact with each other and the the different volumes mm-hmm. of those flavors is what comes out in the terroir and the age and the winemaker. Yeah, and uh, yeah, winemaker influence is always yeah. the thing too. Anybody have a clear vote to go with? I have a clear vote. I, I vote for the Finco Sandoval. I second your vote. I third. It's a clean sweep. Yeah. Clean sweep. Finca Sandoval. It's excellent. They're it's both excellent. The 16% alcohol one, <laughs> blue-eyed boy. They were learning. They were still in their early days. Yeah. On the coldest of winter nights yeah. with the hardiest of hearty foods, yeah. that is exactly what I'm going to want to drink. And I remember being holed up in the Hotel Northampton during a snowstorm, watching the Grammys and being close enough to the radio station that I could walk. And I got a bottle of wine like this yeah. and like some Italian 
smoked meats. Yeah. And I was like, this is this is it. I want to live yeah. this life of decadence and get gout tonight. More foie gras. <laughs> live your dreams. Live your dreams. Up next, it's Live Music Friday with a band who will call it quits after they play their final show at Luthier's Co-op in East Hampton tonight. Like tonight, tonight. We'll say farewell to the Colony Motel. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413, this Groundhog Day. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. The Colony Motel lurks in an East Hampton basement, or so it says on the band's Facebook page. To paraphrase Amy Wilkinson from the band, the Colony Motel is playing their album release slash goodbye forever show at Luthier's on Groundhog Day, or I guess Groundhog Night. Tonight. A little over a year ago, Colony Motel recorded an album called Anywhere Montana. They played a few shows, built some hype, saw some great things on the horizon, and then quit. Tonight, they're dusting off the tunes and playing a final hurrah, last wall style, except without the celebrity guests. It's going, says you. Says Amy. We're paraphrasing still. <laughs> it's going to be the last chance for denizens of the Fabulous 413 to catch the Colony Motel doing that crazy thing they do so well. We welcome to the Fabulous 413 and Live Music Friday, Brian Brown, Amy Wilkinson, Casey Rue, Mark Schmidtline, and Sean Gundy. Gunderson, who very frequently is here in the building fixing stuff for NEPM. At, at buildings across Western Mass. He yes. fixes things at the Schaefer. You too. He fixes things at the Schaefer all the time, and now he's fixing to play some bass for the <laughs> Colony Motel. Uh, let's hear a song from the Colony Motel this Live Music Friday.
But if you touch my arm again, curl your lip. I close my eyes and dive into your sinking shell. Cause I'm beat up and broken and died for a plate of beans and eggs. And I can't get my mind off my hands on the back of your legs. I know if I go with you, it'll be my demise despite the invitation to the warmth of your thighs. The Colony Motel, who will call it a quits after playing Luthier's Co-op tonight. Uh, Brian, who is the lead vocalist on that particular song, tell us about why the Colony Motel was formed and why this is the end. Well, uh... So Mark, the drummer, and I, uh, we started the band back a long time ago. Uh, we had sort of a different format. Um, but basically, um, I met the rest of these guys at open mics in Florence. Gundy is now the fearless leader of that <coughs> open mic. Yeah. <laughs> used to be uh, Alex from the Stuntmen. F. Mm-hmm. Alex Johnson, now in Japan. Uh, now yes. in Japan, correct. <laughs> yeah, and so, uh, yeah. in Japan, actually. Yeah, he's he big is. in Japan. I'm he big is big in Japan. Whole new band in Japan. Yeah, it's fun <laughs> to watch him doing stuff in Japan. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we've been playing music together a long time, and this sort of happened. Um, we're calling it quits because I was shopping at Savers, you know, in West Springfield, and I uh, ran into a warlock uh, wow. in the, the women's raincoat department. He said terrible things would happen if we played a song after Groundhog's Day on 2024. Wow. So, uh, you know, who am I to? Question of Warlock, I guess. Have you talked to Dave Rothstein, who carved out a pumpkin and paddled it down the river and then went to Colorado to carve a sculpture called The Beggar to I make sh- us look deep inside of ourselves to what's important? He may be able to break this curse. And it's- frankly, like all of my years of D&D playing informed me to <laughs> think that you should maybe question Warlocks more. All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I feel like the pumpkin guy can give me courage, so. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. But we got a gig tonight, and it's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, he's coming. By the way, we oh, forgot fantastic. to get him to shamelessly plug you. Yes. but he was well, so excited because he was, was going to come see you tonight at Luthier's Co-op in East Hampton, right there on Cottage Street. You say that your format changed, but what what's changed about it? Just the people involved, or the sound itself? Uh, yeah, you know, it was sort of like a a rock kind of three piece, more of a punk rock thing, and uh, we settled into this. I basically I I was playing music with all these guys individually, and then it just kind of we're like, well, we should make this all come together. Coalesce. Fantastic. It's been amazing. <laughs> and whatever, that these are my friends. We'll, yeah. we'll still all be playing music together forever. Yay. Can we talk a little bit about the open mic and what that has become <laughs> and what it meant even throughout the course of the pandemic? Who wants to take that one? Oh, Amy? my goodness. I don't know. Well, I started going to that open mic something like five, six years ago. Yeah. Uh, sporadically and then more and more regularly and I mean for me I've now joined like three different bands <laughs> through that I have met my partner through that <laughs> and both m- musically and in life and my best friend and these clowns <laughs> it's really it's a pretty amazing community and uh, Casey you might want to talk about the pandemic and how that changed things yeah it's pretty wild. So Sean um, started co- uh, hosting the open mic after Alex moved to Japan and then the pandemic hit. 
and we had such a community and we really didn't nobody quite knew what to do and so we thought well why don't we try doing it on Facebook live so that first week after lockdown we did a Facebook live uh, uh, pandemic show where we would kind of put breadcrumbs out so one person we would open the night uh, our duo is two five we would do uh, the opening then we would pass it on to the next person and the next and the next next 77 weeks 77 we did weeks. live yeah. Facebook live and so it went from being you know like an open mic you're lucky if you get like 20 30 people there at a on any given night but we would have like a thousand views every week it was wild um and then we would go outdoors to his uh to Sean's um backyard. shop um the, the backyard of the shop we were like show. hobos out by the railroad tracks <laughs> there on Bradford Street by the in the industrial park in Northampton. But I, it sounds good. There were barrel fires. There, there were, were barrel fires. There were. There yeah. were. Legal literally. if there were cook fire anytime you want. Yeah. We had hot dogs outside the good. building. It actually turned Absolutely. out that, I mean, I, I know it sounds crazy to say, but I feel like we are some of the only people that I know of who came out on the other side of the pandemic, the lockdown part of it in particular, with a stronger community than we went into. It's really become a, a, a very, really just a beautiful family in yeah. a lot of ways. It was amazing so. as somebody on the outside to watch it and participate on Facebook so many times over the course of those long 77 weeks. Yeah. Hey, thanks for watching. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, let's take a little break right here, and then we'll come back and hear more from the Colony Motel, who are playing their last show tonight at Luthier's Co-op in Cotton Street in East Hampton. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NAPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. And we're here with Brian Brown, Amy Wilkinson, Casey Rue, Gundy, and Mark Schmidtline, who are the Colony Motel, who will play their final performance at Luthier's Co-op in East Hampton on Cottage Street tonight. Let's hear another Live Music Friday song from the Colony Motel. Diamond shimmer, reflections covering your eyes. Freckles on your shoulder, glistening in the sunlight. Sip your drink and clink your eyes. Step inside my Chevy tonight. Hold those heavy doors shut tight. Stay like this for all our lives. Yeah. Stars are sharp as diamond spikes 
Forgive yourself and then you're mine But seems so clean Falls the wind screen Your breath, my neck is not on One wind bends a silent ride Your head on my shoulder One foot out the window Silver city by tonight Joy of blossoms burning bright Sunrise continental divide Your folks up for half a Outside the diamond shamrock, reflections covering your eyes. Freckles on your shoulder, glistening in the sunlight. Sip your drink and clink your eyes. Step inside my Chevy tonight. Pull those heavy doors shut tight. Stay like this for all hours. The Colony Motel, this live music Friday here on the Fabulous 413. Doing they... a song that definitely sounds like goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> Sad that you guys are saying goodbye tonight at Luthier's Co-op, your final show ever. But that said, like, how does this project differ from other projects that you've done together or, or outside? What will you miss? The songs. I love the songs <laughs> that we do in the Colony Same. Motel. I love singing with these two. I don't know, though. You know, like hearing that Dave Rothstein is going to be at the show. He may be able to bring his wizard magic. I don't know. If anyone can, it's Dave Rothstein. So <laughs> that's, so. that's all I can say about that. All right. <laughs> Put the warlock in a pumpkin and send him down the river. Yeah, <laughs> He's already done it. Is he clearing the way? For those who don't know about the Colony Motel, tell us why that you're called the Colony Motel. Oh, sure. Uh, so I grew up... Uh, I grew up locally, and the Colony Motel used to be a very uh, shady side-of-the-road motel in Waitley, right near Tom's Hot Dogs, if you're familiar. Yeah. And uh, if you could pay two bucks, you could ride your bike down Route 5, and you could swim in their pool. And so I have all these beautiful, sort of innocent childhood memories of uh, swimming in this pool while probably there were, like, weapons deals. And, you know, <laughs> basically, the... The plot of the movie Blow. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, 100 feet away from me. Yeah. 
It reminds me of the Hot L Warren, which is uh, not far from the Colony Motel, yes. another legendary uh, place like that. With the, the, it's called the Hot L because the E fell off the sign, so everybody refers to that Deerfield <laughs> establishment as the Hot L Warren, which is still a great place to go it's get a drink there. at the bar. <laughs> well, our there. friend Soren found the old sign for the Colony yes. Motel out in the middle of the woods, and somebody's using it as a gate. Oh, oh. upside so. down. Did you upside take? Down. Did you t- like take a picture of there, it for your album or anything like there, that? There are some photos of it yeah. going around. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in. We're gonna um, we'll miss having you as a band altogether, but we're excited to see what will happen to you in the future in your future endeavors. And frankly, this is a goodbye, but it's a celebration of an album, which is a good time to remind everybody it's Bandcamp Friday. So if you were yes. thinking about picking it up, this is a great day to do so. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank yes. you. This yeah. and all the other wonderful local bands we have here on Live Music Friday. Thank you so much, Colony Motel. It's our pleasure. Thanks Thank for having you. us yeah, on. Absolutely. Yeah. Have a great show tonight. It's going to be awesome. Next week, a little local black history with the Nelson Legacy Project talking about the lives of Wally and Juanita Nelson who made their home on Woman Hill in Deerfield. Billions of folks will celebrate the Lunar New Year and we'll talk to author, illustrator, and Newbery Award winner Grace Lynn about their event at Bombix that will celebrate it. We'll look into the lasting economic repercussions of slavery and the hope of reparations with the folks behind the documentary The Cost of Inheritance, which will get a screening here at the NEPM studios. Plus, we'll explore restorative economic futures and creative equity with the folks from Reset and Peace. In Pittsfield. Given that it is Groundhog Day, we will relive this exact day all over again tomorrow. That is upsetting. Yeah. I don't want to think about doing that. Thank you very much. Yeah, and if you were wondering why we keep playing Sunny no, and no, Shares. No, no, no. Don't ruin the. No. That they don't have ruin to figure, it? Yeah, don't figure ruin it out. It. Yeah. Leave it a mystery. I'm Monty Belmonte. I am Khalees Smith. Have a fantastic weekend, everyone. We will see you on Monday. I got. Wear my ring